September the 3rd, 1993, the Reverend Mehdi Dibaj stood before an Islamic court in the town of Sari in northern Iran. He was charged with a capital offence of apostasy. That is, having converted to the Christian faith from Islam some 45 years previously. For the last nine years, he had languished in jail. Two of them in solitary confinement without any light whatsoever, subject to beatings, torture and mock executions. In 1988, some five years previously, his wife had divorced him and returned to Islam under threats of stoning to death. His written defence submitted to the court is a remarkable document. You can access it on the internet. And here are the final words that he spoke translated from Farsi. He said, He, that is Jesus, is our Saviour and He is the Son of God. To know Him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in His beloved person and all His words and miracles recorded in the Gospel and I have committed my life into opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honour of His holy name, but I'm ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus my Lord and enter his kingdom sooner, the place where the elect of God enter everlasting life, but the wicked to eternal damnation. May the shadow of God's kindness and his hand of blessing and healing be upon you and remain forever. Amen. With respect, your Christian prisoner, Mehdi Dibaj. A few days later, on the 21st of December 1993, the court found him guilty and sentenced him to death. The case was highlighted in the West, following protests from religious and human rights groups. He was released from prison on January the 16th, 1994. Five months later, on June the 24th, he failed to arrive at a birthday party for his daughter. And on July the 5th, the police announced that his body had been discovered buried in a forested area of the capital, Tehran. He'd been stabbed and possibly strangled and hung as well. No one has ever been charged with his murder. Some years before, while still in prison, he had written to his son, I have always envied those Christians who were martyred for Christ Jesus our Lord. What a privilege to live for our Lord and to die for him as well. I am filled to overflowing with joy. I'm not only satisfied to be in prison, but I'm ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus Christ. Almost 20 centuries before he wrote those words, another man in similar circumstances had expressed similar convictions. His name was Paul. He was in prison awaiting trial before the highest court of the Roman Empire before Caesar himself. If found guilty, he would be sentenced to death and there would be no pressure or protest from anyone on his behalf. However, 
in a letter written to the Christians in the Greek city of Philippi, which we've been studying together under this title, Shining Like Stars, he tells them that this prospect does not fill him with dread or despair. In fact, there is only one concern that taxes his mind. He says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And faced with those two options, he has this concern. Which of these options is preferable? The title I've chosen is, on the corner, but never mind, should I stay or should I go? So read with me what he said and then let's look at it together. It's in Philippians chapter 1 and it's page 1178. There are Bibles in the pews, it will help to have one as we look at these verses together. Philippians 1, let's pick up the reading halfway through verse 18 and the paragraph in the New International Version breaks there. Then we'll continue through to verse 26. He says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given me by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But if it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith <coughs> so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. This is God's word spoken, written all those years ago. We usually think that choices allow us freedom, the freedom to choose. Porridge or cornflakes? Which should I choose for breakfast today? For many of us, our own preferences decide the issue. I love porridge, but I can't stand cornflakes, or vice versa. No problem, but suppose you love both. Well, in most circumstances, it's still no problem, for there's nothing to stop you having your cake or cornflakes and eating it, porridge as well. It's hardly a matter of life and death. But the choice that Paul talks about here was a matter of life and death. In fact, it was a matter of life or death. And faced with these two options, he found it hard to choose which he preferred. It's a difficult choice. Look what he says. What shall I choose? Verse 22. What shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. The word translated torn is an interesting word. Literally it means to press something together so there is no room for manoeuvre. It's the word used of a river rushing through a narrow gorge 
with rocky walls on either side of it. If one side were rock and the other side were a sandy beach, then the river would have no problem deciding. It would bounce off the rock and go towards the sandy beach, would it not? But when both sides are rock walls, then the river is hemmed in and it can only move forward, not moving in either direction to either side. The authorised version of the Bible translates Paul's words as Paul saying, it's an old-fashioned word, I am in a strait, S-T-R-A-I-T, like a strait jacket which restricts your movements. So Paul says, I'm torn between these two options, life or death, and I'm struggling to choose between them. In fact, in the original, the sentences that follow are very disjointed. It's been kind of smoothed out by our translation into English. Now, for most people, perhaps for many of us, such a choice is no choice. Given the option of life or death, surely life is the best choice, the only choice. One writer comments, We live in a culture that thinks of death with such dread that society's highest goal is the postponement of death for as long as possible. But for a man like Paul, a man like Mehdi Debarge, this was not the case. Either option, life or death, is an attractive option. As we saw in our last study, for the Christian, and for the Christian alone, the choice between life or death is a win-win situation. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, how is that possible, faced with these two options? Well, we need to look a little more closely at how he describes these two options. So look at that with me, first of all. Option one is death. Paul says, if I die, it means I'll depart and be with Christ. Again, the word depart is another one of those interesting words. It means to loosen or let go of something. It was used in ancient Greek in several different contexts and it will help us to kind of visualise them. I found some pictures on the internet which may help you. It was the word used of untying the yoke on a pair of oxen at the end of a day when they were brought in at the end of a busy day in the fields. The yoke was removed and they could then move around freely I don't know whether oxen relax, but whatever they do when they're not working. And Paul knew that serving Christ was hard work. And so dying and being with Christ meant the end of that kind of labour. It was the word also used of loosening a prisoner's chains from his wrists and or ankles. Freedom at last. Paul knew what that meant. Literally, he says, as he wrote this, he was in chains. And to die and be with Christ meant that the chains would be loosened forever. Not only the physical chains, but all the restrictions of this life would be gone. It was also the word used of loosening the mooring ropes on a ship before it set out to sail on a journey across the ocean. And death was the final loosening of all the ties that bound Paul to this life, setting sail for the final port, as it were. And finally, it was the word used also of loosening the ropes, the guy ropes on your tent before you packed up your tent and moved on to your next destination. And Paul, of course, by trade, was a tent maker. may well be that this was uppermost in his mind. Another writer comments, Camp life is exchanged at death for home life with Christ. 
It's nice, isn't it? Camp life is exchanged at death for home life with Christ. So Paul says, this is gain for me because I'm going to depart. I'm going to leave behind something. But of course, the other important aspect of this is, what are you leaving it for? What do you get in exchange? And so Paul talks not only about departing, he talks about the destination. And he says, the destination that I face is to be with Christ. To depart from this life means to take up residence with Jesus Christ. And it is his presence which makes the journey all the more desirable. Now, this surely means a conscious enjoyment of the presence of Christ when you die. The relationship which the Christian enjoys with Christ on earth will be fully and perfectly enjoyed in heaven, no longer marred by living in a fallen world, wrestling with the world, the flesh and the devil. It will be consciously enjoying the presence of Christ without any hindrance for all eternity. I'm trying to think of a good illustration of this. Think of a young couple who are engaged to be married. I can think of couples like this in church, but I better not embarrass anyone. Who are engaged to be married, but at the moment live in different towns. You know, one lives in Edinburgh and one lives in London. And they spend all the time they can at weekends trying to get together and be together and spend time together. But these are limited times. They're looking forward to the day when finally they get married and then they'll set up home together committing themselves to one another till death us do part. Now, becoming a Christian is a bit like getting engaged. Alright, stay with me because there is biblical warrant for this, alright? When you become a Christian, you discover something amazing that Jesus Christ loves you. And that he calls you to belong to him in an intimate relationship. If this has ever happened to you, then your reaction will be one of absolute and utter amazement. Why me? The answer is simply because of his great love. If you're thinking, I'm not surprised he chose me, I'm the kind of person he ought to have chosen, you've never understood God's grace and love. John Newton knew wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He knew he was a wretch. So, becoming a Christian, a bit like getting engaged, you call to Jesus Christ. And as a pledge that he means this seriously, and that he means it long term, he gives you an engagement ring. Now, this is biblical. The Bible says in the New Testament, several places, in 2 Corinthians 1, for example, it's about verse 22, it says, God has given us his spirit as a deposit or down payment that he's going to pay the rest. Now, the word used there is an interesting word. It's, a, it's an Aramaic word by derivation. It's the word arabone. And in modern Greek, it's used of an engagement ring. It's when God, Jesus Christ, calls you to himself, he gives you his Holy Spirit, who comes to live within you, and that's the engagement ring. That's the guarantee that Jesus Christ will fulfil all his promises to you forever in eternity. Now, unlike human relationships, unlike a marriage relationship which is broken by death, this relationship is sealed by death. Not till death us do part, but till death us do unite. 
the wedding as it were, and don't push this too hard, but the wedding as it were, the final uniting takes place at death when we're with Christ forever. In fact, the New Testament calls it the marriage banquet of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's, that is an amazing thing. But I have to tell you this, unless the engagement takes place before you die, you will never experience the wedding after you die. Unless you're engaged, as it were, to Jesus Christ in this life, you have nothing to look forward to at death, only eternal separation from God. But if you're a Christian, that relationship that you enjoy now with Jesus Christ, that imperfect relationship that's marred by your own nature, by all the things you wrestle with, by living in a fallen world, by switching on the news and seeing all the terrible things that are happening, you look at it and say, if only there was something better, and for the Christian there is. Because when you die, you're with Christ. Perfectly united with Him. And I simply ask you, can you say that? Can you say, for to me to live is Christ, this life, and to die is gain. Are you certain of the destination to which you are heading after death? What do you have to look forward to beyond the grave? The last book of, of the Narnia stories, which C.S. Lewis wrote for children, but most adults enjoy as well, including myself, is called The Last Battle. And if you've read the story in it, the lion Aslan, who represents the Lord Jesus Christ, finally defeats the wicked white witch and all her forces and restores the land to the paradise it once was. And uh, the children who've been involved in this, from this life, who've gone into Narnia through the through the wardrobe if you know the story and everything this is how the story the final story ends it's beautiful then Aslan turned to them and said you do not look as happy as I meant you to be Lucy said that's one of the children we're so afraid of being sent away Aslan and you've sent us back to our own world so often no fear of that said Aslan have you not guessed their hearts leapt and a wild hope rose within them there was a real railway accident Aslan said softly your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. It's beautiful, isn't it? And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful, I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of the stories and we can truly say that they all lived happily ever after. And that is the prospect in a pictorial way of what awaits the Christian when you die. And that is why Paul says, this is my preferred option. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. The word desire is a word of intense longing. It's the word Jesus used in this holy week when he met with his disciples and he said, I've earnestly, eagerly desired to eat this meal with you before I die. I've really been looking forward to this. And he says, I desire to depart, says Paul, and be with Christ, which is better by far. It literally says in the original, it is much rather better. That is by far the best. So, if that's the case, surely you say there's no choice. If this is really true, then that must be the choice for Paul and every Christian. But there is another option 
which counterbalances it. Now look at the second option. All right? The second option is life, which Paul describes as being fruitful labour. Instead of departing through death in order to be with Christ in heaven, Paul has another option, he says, to remain in the body. That is to continue his physical existence on earth. On Thursday evening this week, I sat in Terminal 1 in Heathrow Airport, waiting for my British Midland flight to Edinburgh to be called. I arrived at Terminal 1 very early at 5.30 and the plane was delayed by an hour. So I had four hours before my departure. What do you do for four hours in Terminal 1? Well, the last thing you do if you're a Christian, you don't sit there and say, oh no, I've got four hours to kill. Isn't that an awful phrase? The end of life, if we add up all the hours we killed, some of us would have a few years to go. What do you do with the time? Now, the bigger question is, if your departure, if God has not called your flight number yet, you're still here, most of you still look as though you're still here, if it's not called your flight number yet, your departure is not yet, what do you do between now and departure time? Well, you don't just sit around killing time. Paul says, although he'd prefer to depart immediately, be with Christ, at present he said, I'm here in this body, physically on earth. So what does he do? Does he just hang around? No. He says, if he remains on earth, it must be for some purpose that God has got for him that is more important than him going to heaven at this present time. Look at verse 22. He says, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. The word labour simply means hard, hard work. Paul knew about that hard work, service of Christ. Fruitful labour is labour that produces something useful. Now, what did Paul mean when he said fruitful labour? Some people think that he meant his missionary activities. The fruit that he gained as he preached the gospel and more people were won for Christ. That is, winning new converts. Uh, And while that may be possible included, it's not really what he focuses on here in these verses. Rather, his concern is not on winning new converts, but encouraging and establishing the existing converts in the faith like the Christians in Philippi. How will he help them? Well, look again at verses 24 to 26. He says, But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body, convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. He writes, I believe it's God's will at the moment for me to remain on earth, to continue with all of you for two reasons. For your progress in the faith, and your joy in the faith. First of all, for their steady progress in the faith. These Philippians had come to faith when Paul had preached the good news about Jesus to them. But like all Christians, they needed to grow as Christians to make progress in their understanding of all that Jesus had done for them. And all that it meant to follow him. So it is vital for Paul as their spiritual father, Paul believes, to remain for a little while longer in order to teach them more of the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ and about the faith that they'd embrace. But there is a second reason, he says, why he must remain. One that affects not just their heads but also their hearts and what they feel. 
for their shared joy in the faith. Paul says, I believe that if I'm released from prison, if I'm acquitted before Caesar, this would be more beneficial to you than hearing of my death in prison. The latter would discourage them, while the former would encourage them. So that, verse 26, through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on behalf of me, on account of me. Somewhat confusingly, if you look at verse 25 and 26, the New International Version translates two different words with the same English word joy. In verse 25, your progress in joy in the faith. Joy just means joyfulness, gladness. But when you come to verse 26, he literally, literally says, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may overflow on behalf of me. Now, boasting is not a kind of word you expect to find here because boasting is a bad thing. Well, it's not necessarily. It depends who or what you're boasting about. Paul is saying here, if I'm released from prison, when we get back together again, we'll be able to boast. Not about me. You'll be able to boast about the Lord Jesus Christ who has worked so powerfully in my life and through whom I've been set free. So, when Christians meet together to praise God, there's lots of debate at the moment, what, what do we do when we meet together? Is it a time of worship? Well, all of our lives are worship. Is it a time of praise? Well, it is. It's a time of thanksgiving. Okay, I've got a new one to throw into the pot. Let's sometimes say, when we get together as Christians, let's meet together for a time of boasting. It's boasting time. Boasting about what? A boasting about the Lord Jesus Christ. Boasting in his cross. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the cross of Christ my God. That we meet together and we celebrate who Jesus Christ is. And we boast in who he is, that he's our saviour. And that we love him and what he's done for us. He's not boasting about us. It's boasting about him. And so for these two reasons, for their progress in joy in the faith, Paul believes, indeed he says he's convinced, that he'll remain on earth. Now notice here, he's got two options. He's got his preferred option, which is death. He's got his necessary option, which is to remain on earth. Now notice what he chooses. He chooses not his personal preference, but that which will benefit others. He's practicing what he preaches. This is one of the messages of this letter. To put the needs and concerns of others before yourself. Verse 4 of chapter 2. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. And then he goes on to say, in that wonderful hymn that follows, this is just what Jesus did. He didn't think of his own preferred option. He put our concerns first. Now, how often our own choices in all sorts of issues, let alone life or death, are governed by what we actually prefer, rather than stopping and saying, how will this benefit my fellow Christians or other people who maybe aren't Christians? What about my choices. For example, there are some people who aren't here, there are many people who aren't here this morning for legitimate reasons. Our international fellowship are away for the weekend. I want to pray for them, remember them while they're away. But there are some people who got up this morning, rolled over and thought, I can't be bothered to go to church this morning. I think I'll just stay in bed and have a long lie-in. That's their preferred option. If, honestly we're told, some of you who are here this morning rolled over and thought that but still came. We won't take a vote on it. But how many of us stopped and said, 
But if I'm not there this morning, if I'm there this morning, think what an encouragement it will be with other Christians, how I can encourage them as I meet together with them to boast about the Lord Jesus Christ. What a joy that will be for them. I'll come to the prayer meeting so I can encourage my fellow Christians to pray together. It's not some legalistic thing for me beating over the head. It's the principle on which you make those kind of choices. Now we're nearly finished, but let's look at some concluding thoughts. Here's Paul faced with these two options, life or death. Which is most likely? Well, it seems as though he's pretty sure that he will be acquitted, that life will be the option that he faces. Convinced of this, I know, he says, I will remain. Scholars spend hours discussing these kind of things. How did he come to this conviction? One minute it seems sure, then he's not sure. Maybe as he was just writing this, somebody knocked on the prison door and said, Good news, Paul, you're going to be set free. Well, if you believe that, by the time you get to chapter 2, somebody knocked on the cell door and said, sorry Paul, mistake, write that again. Because he says in verse 17 of chapter 2, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering. Did he get bad news at this point? Probably not. The truth is, if you've ever been in this kind of situation, yourself or your family members, and you're wrestling with what God is saying to you, the reality is you often just don't know in all honesty. Or you can look at it logically and say, I think this is likely to happen. But on the other hand, I'm not really sure. In fact, Paul says that. I do not know, he writes in verse 22. Literally, it says, I have nothing to declare. What he's saying is, I have no clear word from the Lord about what the option will be. Logically, looking at the needs of the Philippian Christians, he's pretty sure he'll be released. Church history seems to support that. But he couldn't be absolutely sure. So what about us? In the 18th century, Samuel Johnson famously wrote, Depend on it, sir, when a man knows he's to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. Few of us know the precise date of our death. But Paul's words that we've looked at this morning are of vital relevance because they help us to concentrate our minds on the crucial issues of life or death. Should I go... Or should I stay? Should I go? Question. Am I ready to depart? Am I sure that at death, even if it were today, I will be with Christ forever? Is that my preferred option? Can I stay? It is better by far. Should I go? Or should I stay? Have I reasons to remain? Am I living a life of fruitful service? serving my fellow Christians, helping them to make progress in their faith, meeting together with them for their encouragement and joy? Or am I living for myself? Or worst of all, am I just marking time, going through the motions of life, even killing time? If you are a Christian and you are still here on earth, then God still has some purpose for your life and for you while you are here. What is your choice? Should I stay? Should I go? Final illustration. Began with an Iranian pastor. Let me conclude with an English pastor. Someone many of you will remember, certainly my generation. Reverend David Watson was an outstanding Bible teacher and evangelist when I was an undergraduate in the late 60s. I remember him conducting a mission at my university. In January 1983, suddenly and unexpectedly, he was diagnosed with inoperable cancer and given a year to live. What was God's will in this matter? concentrated his mind, that of his friends. Many of his friends believed that God would heal him. David Watson thought that was likely himself. In Easter 1983, 
three months after his diagnosis, just after his 50th birthday, he was interviewed by Nick Page on BBC Radio 4 in a programme entitled David Watson, A Case for Healing? In which he shared that he believed and hoped that God would heal him. But what happens, and I quote from his book, Fear No Evil, his final book, what happens, asked Nick Page, if you find that healing is not coming? This is what he answered. If I found it was not coming, I hope I've got to the position of trusting in Christ that the best is yet to be. You know, actually to be with Christ and free forever from all the pain and suffering, tears and all the problems and injustices of this world, there is nothing more glorious than that. That is why I genuinely am at the place where I really want to be in heaven, sometimes the sooner the better, but I'm willing to be on this earth with all its struggles and battles if he wants me there. God grant him his wish in the early hours of Saturday, February the 18th, 1984, when he was called home into the presence of Christ. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Only the Christian can say that and know that. Can you? Let's pray together.